0: Welcome to the Build the Future podcast. My name is Cameron Wiese, and I'm your host. I've always been fascinated by the ideas and sentiment that drove American culture in the 1960s with the space race. A culture galvanized to dream about the possibilities of tomorrow, whether it's food, transportation, cities, biology, or anything else. It was this cultural mindset rooted in optimism that the world tomorrow would be better than the world today. A mindset where people were compelled to build things, and I quote JFK, not because they were easy, but because they were hard. It's this desire to build and to dream that seems to have been lost and something we're here to bring back. With Build the Future, we're here to promote the ideas and stories of those who see how the future can be better and promote their plans to get us there. It's our mission to get you to dream about the possibilities of tomorrow, dream about the future that you want to live in, and inspire you to go build. Today, we're talking with Chris Power, the CEO and founder of Hadrian. At Hadrian, they build autonomous component factories that help customers make rockets, satellites, jets, and electric vertical takeoff and landing vehicles two times faster and cheaper. In doing so, they're onshore in the manufacturing of our future and ensuring that companies leading the way in defense and space have the tools they need to go build. Let's jump right in.
1: I don't think people get the gravity of the national security implications. Imagine if you were McDonald's and all your fries and burger patty suppliers were 10 years away from going out of business. It's an existential risk, right? You literally can't run McDonald's without burger patties, right? That is effectively the entire space and defense industry right now in America and no one else sees it coming.
0: And why is that? Why is this the state of things right now?
1: So the reason why it's the state of things is because the manufacturing supply chain first got built up from the first base race and the first defense industrial base buildup. So it's just a demographics thing. And the congressional industrial complex meant that it was all fragmented across all 50 states, which had at the time made complete sense. You know, zero criticism. But what you have is this demographics of... You know, owners who started their business 30 years ago when they were 30, so now they're 60, they're all 10 to 20 employees, average 10 million in revenue, so real family-owned, owner-operated mom and pops, and they're scattered across the country, which now is a completely untenable situation for several reasons. One is they cause absolute chaos for all our advanced manufacturers from Lockheed Martin to SpaceX to Relativity to Joby Aviation to ABL Space or any hardware startup at YC trying to build the future. And over the next 10 years, as the supply chain has never been in more demand for two reasons, one is the new space race. And secondly, the defense industrial base is gearing up for a great power conflict with China. In that same decade, as the demand is going to exponentially grow, the supply is slowly gonna start falling off as all these small businesses shut down. So like, this is a huge problem because you know, you don't get to launch a hundred starships a year without the supply chain. We don't get to do a bunch of weird shit in San Francisco with all our hippie friends unless there's a bunch of like big scary guys in F-35s, you know, patrolling patrolling the skies. None of the flying car future or the spacefaring future or the peaceful democratic spacefaring future happens without the supply chain being super robust. And You know, I can tell you about all the cool stuff we're building, but that is really the problem we're solving is, one, how do we speed up all the advanced manufacturing in the United States by an order of magnitude and have the same effect on advanced manufacturing that cloud computing had had on software engineering, both on efficiency of businesses and also just this huge explosion of democratizing software engineering, right? Because now it costs you $500 to start something instead of a million dollars. So now you just have an order, order of magnitude more software startups, which is great. If we do that for advanced manufacturing, the same thing will happen. And then secondly is, this is the 20 or 30 year period where we settle the solar system. And what happens historically, if you look at how uh, continents have been settled or in other cases, colonized historically, the culture and the politics and the ways of doing things kind of stick Once the first culture lands, that's the way it is. And you can look at the moon or the solar system as an eighth continent. And then it lasts for 100 years. So it's not just like the first space race where, yeah, we landed on the moon, right? That wasn't a settlement or colonization event. So even if the Russians had won, would communism have stuck? No. This 30-year period, it's going to stick. So it's not just the fact that, in my lifetime, I don't want to live under the CCP's yoke because they have a moon base and we don't. Whatever sticks in the next 20 to 30 years is going to stick for the next 500 years. And there are two paths. There are two paths. There's a path where there are two or three great powers keeping each other in check. Like it is just as important that the US has a key competitor as it is that the US is a key competitor, right? So that most, most of the conflict is minimal, it's fought with pens and paper over legal things with a bunch of lawyers and resources and not, it's not a hot war. And what that enables is an Antarctica style moon space. Like it's, it's research oriented, it's resource controlled. Yes, it's, it's capital driven, it's free market driven, But it's done kind of beautifully and then we have this cambrian explosion of a lot of cool stuff happening across you know the next century the alternate path to that is we don't keep other great powers in check we lose the foothold which leads to two things once there's a power imbalance power imbalances create conflict so that's bad and then secondly we might lose that conflict and the leading architecture is social credit score you know, chemical castration of millions of women, not the U.S. has done some bad shit, don't get me wrong, but net net, I want to live in that system. If you track the root causes back of how conflicts are won or lost, you know, where the Rubicon gets crossed, it's basically manufacturing capacity. It's like, how much stuff can you throw at the other person? Ideally, you don't even want to throw anything at the other person. It's all posturing, right? But right now... You know this is not public knowledge it's just it's not in the zeitgeist but anyone in the know knows that spacex doesn't exist without the supply chain well it's spacex they'll probably figure it out but the broad strokes of advanced manufacturing from toll companies like jovi aviation launch vehicle companies everyone from abl space and astra and relativity and rocket lab and spacex and blue the entire defense industrial base and real and everything in between that we haven't really even seen yet does not exist or exists incredibly inefficiency like before cloud computing for software engineering, and if those companies don't exist and don't thrive, then people forget that that's the that, that is the foundation of the U.S. led democratic system. So the future that I want to live in is the Jetsons future, right? I don't want to live in the Blade Runner future.
0: Absolutely not. So and this is something we get to fight for every day. I want to I want to have you paint paint the picture of again the the supply chain network right now. So you can kind have of alluded to it. You have the mom and pop shops from the last space race that popped up and they do the manufacturing of these things. Like what does it actually look like and how bad is it that it's fragmented this way?
1: You know, about 10% of the suppliers are pretty great. They do a good job. I, I have zero criticisms of, of these owner operators. They do amazing stuff. They're artisans, like you know, they've done an incredible job. It's just that it's just that they haven't pushed the limit on what's possible. To give you an example, a lot of the rocket engine components are made in garages in LA with six people in there that look like they're out of the Fast and the Furious Too. The reason why the F-16 fleet is at 60% readiness is because half of the birds can't get parts. And if you track that all the way back, it's because the engine housing got sole-sourced to some 30-person business in Iowa, 20 years ago and that company has a 20 week lead time and doesn't have the capital capacity or efficiencies to produce many 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 more of those the worst example is the stealth bomber which literally the business that used to make key parts for the stealth bomber went out of business they retired there are no digital files of those components anywhere so the dod literally has a contract out that you can RFP on today to win the contract to reverse engineer that part and find a way to like re- recreate that component. There's another another example of this, which is less about efficiency, but it's more about, you know, you'll get the general vibe of the supply chain. And I'm not sure how much this is public knowledge. So I'll kind of dance around the edges. One of the SpaceX anomalies when one of the early rockets blew up was because of supply chain fraud, where there was a component that was made out to be made of one alloy the supplier committed fraud and shipped it made out of another alloy and then it crumpled under load and the rocket blew up and now that guy's in jail another example is let me talk in a hypothetical imagine that for a certain a certain grade of satellite you need a certain type of solar panel and these satellites are super strategic to the country. communications infrastructure. There are about three companies in the US that know how to make those types of solar panels. It's high-tech stuff. Uh, The Chinese don't have that IP. You cannot sell that IP to the Chinese because of regulations, which makes sense. Hypothetically, imagine that if, through a series of financial entities, there was a private equity fund that looked American that bought one of these companies, and then it accidentally went bankrupt 12 months later and then another private equity fund bought it out of chapter 11 bankruptcy and there happened to be a loophole in bankruptcy law that allowed you to skirt around the itar regulations you would find a way to stealthily fund two different private equity funds that looked american but weren't and within a year and a half had managed to export the solar panel technology ip out of the country i mean this really happened you know some of it is this is really inefficient and it's annoying some of it is really, 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 really scary. And I think one of the tricks with this industry is that everyone looks at SpaceX and Lockheed Martin and Andrew and goes, wow, they're really they're building advanced stuff. The whole thing must be efficient. And they are like, you know, SpaceX, Lockheed, Andrew, Relativity, Vada, everyone is like super efficient. But if if you you know double click a couple of layers deeper, it's 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 a total mess.
0: Yeah. Let's use that as a segue into how how you think about tackling that. So what what does it look like to start to consolidate these and become the the manufacturer uh, of all of these parts and pieces? Like where do you start and like how do you expand out?
1: So what you want to do at a meta level with a startup is find a series of customers who have similar requirements and then scale the hell out of them to get to a size where you can tackle other markets, like Stripe. You know, you build payments for startups first, then you get big enough that you can do everything. So we are building a series of factories targeted at space startups big and small that will do about 60 to 90 percent of their requirements in terms of the types of parts the materials the envelope sizes and that the demand for that is growing massively so basically we have a concept of factory market fit so that's what we're building first it's vertically integrated in the sense that it's our software running the factory, but we also run the factory. It's the only way to control the lead times and the costs and the errors to a point where you can actually solve the customers' problems. You know, slapping a marketplace or a platform on top of you know inefficient businesses doesn't make them more efficient. It just solves the buyer and the buyer, you know, the, the, the supply and demand matching equation. It doesn't make make it more efficient. So we have to go vertically integrated. And we use that as a leverage point to scale the hell out of our first party manufacturing while building the software infrastructure that will enable uh, the rest of the industry to catch up with us. So, yeah, that's that's basically what we're building first is, you know, the alien dreadnought MVP down here in LA uh, fo- focused on the space industry. Uh, and that will give us the leverage point and the knowledge to be able to expand into other stuff, whether it's defense or different types of manufacturing or different types of hard metals. That's what's going on at the moment. Can you
0: explain the uh, the alien dreadnought analogy?
1: The alien dreadnought is a sci-fi trope where there is a, you know, a a factory sitting out in space that makes other factories, that makes starships, that makes, you know, X-Wings or whatever. It's the factory that builds the factory. It's the machine that builds the machine. And what Elon is eventually trying to build with Tesla is alien dreadnought as a factory. It's a factory that spits out other factories. It spits out cars. It's a self-improving engine. You know, it's like an ML model or something. So ultimately... The ultimate version of Adrian is that you whack open an API and you call our API, and some machine in Texas starts whirring and starts, you know, starts spitting out a rocket. Basically, now obviously version one of that is just the components, uh, and obviously there's a lot of human in the loop stuff. But ultimately, where we should get to is that the entire entire advanced manufacturing infrastructure is abstracted into an API, and that it is self-improving in the sense that like oh, to get to this product, you need these components. We don't have the machine, but the factory knows how to build the machine that builds the machine that builds the car or the rocket. And this is completely insane and decades off, but someone's going to do it at some point. And, you know, like Amazon continues to abstract things into AWS and, you know, Stripe continues to abstract things into Stripe and, we will we will do the same thing and eventually we'll get there uh it might be 20 years it might be 50 years just see see we'll see where the technology curve goes but that's the alien dreadnought concept
0: what are the major like technological insights we have to we have to clean or like discoveries we have to make in order to to make that sort of thing possible or does it stuff already exists today it's just a matter of stacking pieces and building up
1: to it i think it exists today it's just stacking and building up to it the real trick is chunking down the processes of a factory to a point where you can make them uh like digestible engineering problems so starting from scratch and saying put a robot in a factory so that there's never any human labor is a problem that will never get solved because it's not it's not broken down into digestible chunks whereas if you have everything working so well that you can say hey a human being is doing these 10 tasks let's just put an engineering team on task number one and then now that's fully automated and you just slowly, you slowly build up to it. If you kind of look at history, there are two, the only way to build a complex system is to build a series of simple systems that eventually stack stack on top of each other. Yeah, if, if you try and build a complex system from scratch top down, it's like this massive failure mode. So one of the tricks here is that I, I think assembly like Tesla are doing is the wrong abstraction layer to build the alien dreadnought from because it's too complicated as a starting point. If you start with, just making parts where it's more like a server farm where, you know, a minute of machine time is like a minute of compute or something. And there are more discrete processes, it's more handleable, right? That's primitive number one. Then you could say, you know, primitive number two is take two automated components and, you know, bolt them together as an assembly. Now you have assemblies. Then you can do a rocket engine. Then you can do a rocket. But I I think, Starting with the car metal layer or the rocket metal layer and trying to automate that, there's too many layers of abstraction. There are too many snap-off points. So, I would say that, like technology-wise, I don't think there's much out there that doesn't exist. You know, the OpenAI uh, robotics team have solved a lot of the vision challenges. You know, scheduling algorithms are a known quantity. Like all this stuff kind of exists in different in different patches. I think it's just basically What's the right layer of abstraction to start with that lets you scale a good business with defined processes so that you continue to acquire capital, which means you can continue to acquire engineering teams to put on these discrete engineering challenges and then build up to it. And that's the only way to do it.
0: Part of me is like, really curious about like, the, the process process. When a company or when you have Andrew coming to you saying, "Hey, we need this part or we want this," like what that actually looks like on your end, is that something you're you're open to talking about, or is that kind of internal? No,
1: it's it's pretty simple. I'll, I'll give you the current state,
0: and I'm curious like how that pairs with the
1: software side too. Yeah, yeah. So so uh, let's say that I'm I'm uh, I'm Blue Origin uh, since Jeff is putting himself in the capsule in a little bit over a month. I'm Blue Origin, and an engineer says, "Hey, I finished designing this part for the rocket engine. I need ten of them." Then it goes to someone in the supply chain team and they take a PDF print of the part and a 3d file, which is roughly accurate, but is not fully accurate. And they send that piece of information to five different machine shops via email and say, Hey, quote us this package of parts." That can take two weeks. Then someone gets awarded the contract. And this, this could be a $25,000 order. It can be a $10 million order, like, you know, it's all the same thing then they get awarded that contract, now there's a scramble because usually what's happened is Cameron, I've promised you I can do it in five weeks. In the preceding two weeks of that bidding process, I might've filled my factory up with something else already. So is that, is that lead time valid or not? Question mark. Do I have the software systems to even answer that question? No. And then I'm going through this production planning process of saying, okay, well, we need to get this out by the end of the month. Someone will design the manufacturing process. Uh, it goes in machine one then machine two then it goes out to an anodizer then it comes back and then it gets quality inspected so there's a variant of that process depending on what's required from the customer and for you to make a good part so there's a planning process then the supply chain kicks into gear and you're ordering the raw material you're ordering the tooling then it goes to the CAD and CAM team who are manipulating the geometry of the model and using a cam piece of software to generate G-code, which eventually runs on the machine and tells the machine what to do. In parallel with all the supply chain stuff, hopefully happening at the same time, so that by Friday, all of that pre-production stuff is done so that on Monday, you can start making the part. From there, it can be as simple as operator gets the part, they put the part in the machine, they press go. It can be as complicated as they put the part in the machine, they press go, something goes wrong, it needs to go to QC. It goes through a kind of a recovery loop. That takes a week. And then it finally goes through the production process and, and makes it to the customer. What's tricky there is that very rarely in the current state does do all these, those things happen smoothly. You can track this back of like SpaceX launch gets delayed. NASA is pissed off. Why? Because the rocket engine was two weeks late on the assembly schedule. Why? Because the parts arrived late. Why? because I told Bob to order 10 blocks of aluminum. He missed the email for three days. So the raw material doesn't arrive on time. We go to make the part, the raw material is not there. We have to reschedule the factory that costs us a week and a half and the whole thing cascades. So that's kind of the current process. Uh, it It sounds simple, but getting it right every single time smoothly and quickly with all this error handling of everything that could possibly go wrong and using software to make that more efficient is, is the big challenge here. Like no one part of that equation is particularly hard. The software that handles the logic of, you know, Cameron, you're the quality inspection team and it didn't pass quality inspection. What do you do? You know, you need to have an entire software system built around that, you know, unhappy use case to handle everything smoothly. And that's a lot of what we're building.
0: Yeah, very, very straightforward process. You know, no, not a lot of room for, for error. And, you yeah, know, if something slips up, you know, get right back on track and meet, meet those deadlines. Simple. <laughs> so, so then the idea is, okay, bring that all in-house, provide visibility into the, into the process, um, do the manufacturing of those pieces, starting with a number of parts and then scaling that up as you go. What's been like the most surprising thing for you in the development of the, the software, right? So just like on the, on the quality control example, I, I imagine currently that feedback is like, hey, this thing is broken, it needs to be adjusted. Like maybe here's, a, here's a, like an email with some of the errors that we read out versus having it baked into the system where it's like, oh, here's exactly what went wrong. Like this needs to
1: be adjusted this way. What does that look like? So the, the data is usually not there. A lot of the infrastructure we're creating is to get that data. And aerospace, aerospace manufacturing is so uh, complicated that it can literally come down to the the sun was shining in the window and the machine was two degrees hotter. So you made a part the night before on the exact same machine and now you're making that part on the same machine but it's two degrees hotter and that warped, that warped the tool incrementally slightly so that the fifth part you made is out of tolerance. We literally... spending an ungodly amount of money on climate control for the factory so that there's only ever a one to two degree fahrenheit variance in the temperature at any given point in time day or night you're dealing with nanometer tolerances and you're dealing with like raw material physics and you know all this crazy stuff so for example it can literally come down to if you don't have deep enough foundations for the machine to sit on and you're near a train track which we're not and the train goes past, and a human being wouldn't even notice it, it might have vibrated the machine slightly, such that the holes got drilled half a thou the wrong direction. And then the quality inspector is going, why is this the case? Someone did something wrong. There are all these environmental variables that you need to take into account. There are all these special, you know, these special situations that you need to kind of like track and account for. And yeah, this is how like this is how crazy it is.
0: That's Unbelievable. Yeah. You think it's like, oh, yeah, you just press the button and the machine prints the part and you're good to go. But when you're dealing with with systems of this nature, like the precision matters. So, like, precision is everything
1: <laughs> it has to be exactly the spec. And if it's off by a nanometer, yeah. like. So, there's, you know, we, we combine the best of like known manufacturing principles like that, as well as the software to, you know, scaffold everything so that the errors happen a lot less. But yeah, it, it's unbelievably difficult. Yeah
0: then you can kind of pair that with like the state of the existing supply chain or like do these mom and pop shops have the tools and the resources and the software and the insight to measure these sorts of things? Like,
1: Oh yeah. 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 So this is, this is what's great. is all those tools are out there, but no one's stitched together into end to end, you know, a fairly proof system.
0: So this seems one of those, those problems that like everyone in the industry realizes a problem, but like no one had, no one had solved for it. Why do you think that was? And like, what what insight did you have that that kind of led you to be like, oh no, we've got to do this right now. Like, oh, it can be done. Was it just asking that question
1: or? I would say that the biggest mistake that other founders have made historically who have tried to tackle this or private equity firms who've tried to do rollups in this space is that there's an ego attached to being a PhD software engineer or a private equity guy that is basically like, we're smarter than you, we'll work it out. Um, whereas if I was to tell you like the one trick of Hadrian that matters more than anything, it's the understanding that all of these problems have been solved before by somebody and having a the right mix of team members who don't really care what the right answer is or the right fix for that, you know, for the fix for that problem, as long as the whole system works. And that starts with like, I mean, we literally have people with applied math degrees from Yale sitting next to people who didn't graduate high school, arguing over how to do something. And both of them have valid answers.
0: Incentives seem to really matter in, in, in stuff like this. Oh,
1: yeah. and, I, and I think the other, the other thing that is interesting is every single time someone's tried to build a piece of software for a manufacturing company, there's a principal agent problem of you build software to sell to a CFO, right? So, and manufacturing software is so deep and complicated that you literally cannot build enough of it by being, you know, by doing customer interviews, for example, it doesn't work. So, there is no software toolkit for existing manufacturers that is good because it's all built externally. So, There is, And and the reason why there are no software engineering teams in manufacturing companies is because the future is unevenly distributed and it's just a different culture and you know what. So basically the only way to guarantee that you eventually get to a piece of software that does this is co-locate software engineers with manufacturing people and own your own problems. You have to dog food your way there and chip away at the marble until it's right. So there are all these other interesting like historical patterns as to why this hasn't happened. And I think we've got the right mix here. I'm sure there are, there are things that we haven't quite predicted. Yeah, there's a very specific kind of meta way to build this business that p- people often don't grasp, yeah.
0: A lot, of the, a lot of the innovation we're seeing does require that kind of different differing of perspective because when you have private equity folks coming in trying to try to do something, they have very clear incentives as to like what they're trying to optimize for. And it doesn't necessarily get you the, the outcome that you need. Can you kind of talk through the the state of the space race right now, kind of the the Blue Origin, SpaceX, like what's going on there and then and then actually I want to hear your take on 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 Jeff, our boy Jeff going going up in space. Good idea, bad idea. Do you have a hot take?
1: <laughs> I have a hot take. Which one do you want the space race or the Bezos hot take?
0: Let's start with the Bezos hot take and then and then we'll go to the space race hot take.
1: Yeah. <laughs> All right here's, here's my un, unfiltered opinion that vehicle has not flown enough times that from the outside it looks like a good idea. However, Jeff is like one of the smartest people on the planet. I have no doubt that he's read all the technical specs and test data himself and that there is a minimal amount of risk. Otherwise he just wouldn't do it. I think that it is a massive throwing of the gauntlet to Elon and other entrepreneurs, To do it themselves i think that it is an incredibly effective marketing tactic for customers saying this is safe enough for astronauts to fly on look i'm doing it which they kind of have to do a move like this because they're slightly behind right just in competitive positioning and i think that there are two outcomes one is it goes wrong and basically the space industry goes into an ai winter for 10 years or it unlocks an order of magnitude, more capital and excitement in the space. And we're going to have an incredible, incredible 10 or 20 year run. I think it's a real sliding doors moment. I think like, you know, there was the Doug and Bob launch with SpaceX. That was the first time SpaceX, you know, autonomous, autonomously landed a booster. And I think from like a, less of a technology sliding door moment, but from a cultural moment, I think this is, I think this is massive. I think this is like, rockefeller carnegie grade boxing gloves coming on and i'm like <laughs> i'm fucking super excited i think it's hilarious that's my hot take amazing
0: because it really is a flex right jeff going and going the rock and say hey no i'm gonna do this and it really allows it to permeate the zeitgeist and everyone is gonna pay attention everyone's gonna be talking about this everyone already is talking about it. like jeff bezos is gonna, he's gonna go up to space are you crazy and they're talking and they're talking and they're talking brilliant
1: move brilliant move i think it's a massive massive cultural moment i think it's a huge deal if i had to flip a coin i'd say it's going to be successful i think they know what they're doing there's always an element of risk but i think jeff is the best one of the best calculated risk takers on the planet you know i think it's uh, you know but yeah the gloves the, the gloves are coming on it's gonna be great
0: Now, let's kind of take that and then use kind of transition into the the space race more broadly. So we've got Blue Origin, who's clearly uh, they've been off the off the radar for a bit. They're behind. Jeff had to come out of Amazon to uh, step down from Amazon to really kind of start to amplify the seriousness of this. For insider's perspective, how do you view the landscape and like what's exciting, where are things going? Assuming that this Blue Origin launch, which really, you know, is anchored in this, uh, is successful and kicks off this, this next wave.
1: Yeah, I think the most exciting thing is like launch costs are on a, uh, on a Moore's law curve in reduction of you know, per kilo into orbit that will continue to go down, whether it's SpaceX or another competitor crops up. And that's just enabling so much innovation in companies like Varda Space or anything else that we just can't predict. Like you just don't know what happens when you uh, suddenly enable the American countryside to be connected with a bunch of cheap transportation like trains you're expanding the economic bounds of America by doing that. And launch vehicles are effectively railroads flipped vertically. And But the economic bounds are multiple orders of magnitude bigger than unlocking Idaho, right? So I'm not going to make a prediction because who the hell knows what's going to happen. Once Delta V is cheap, you know, it's wild. There's a lot of cool stuff going in, in, in satellites. I think like Planet Labs is... I, I still think it could be one of the biggest biggest companies for both climate change and just like financially. I think, you know, they've got a lot of cool stuff going on. I really think like a lot of the launch vehicle companies probably over the next four to five years will consolidate. I think there's probably only room for like five or six launch vehicle companies, not like a hundred. just doesn't make any sense. I think in the meantime, it's going to be a great race and there's a lot of cool technologies coming out. I do think it's not just going to be SpaceX. I think it's going to be, you know, SpaceX and ABL space and Astra and, Four or five other players who form different chunks of the market. I think there is a at least thirty percent chance that Jeff Lands takes the helmet off and declares that he's uh, coming in as the the CEO of Blue Origin.
0: Only thirty percent. You think it's the most likely outcome? I, I think so. It's like what better way to announce? Because like he's done it. He's done it at Amazon. What's he gonna do next? Like this is this is the moment to announce. You know.
1: Yeah. <laughs> So if it's going to happen, it'll happen, you know, on the 21st of July, it may or may not happen. And then I think the more important thing is the space race that's going on between the US conglomerate, whether you want to call that the UN or NATO or whatever, versus the Russians and the Chinese. I mean, China was never, you know, allowed to be on the International Space Station, although people have tried for years, both internally in American politics and externally to try and make that happen. I think it would have been great having now... Made the Russians pull out of uh, the ISS, where we've had a long-term partnership with them that's been very successful for international relations. You know, the communication between astronauts cross-country and scientists cross-country does a huge, a huge, huge, huge uh, range of benefit to like geopolitics. And the fact that that's being dis- disconnected is, I-, I think, a travesty. But the signaling alone of the fact that there's going to be two, uh, two space stations. Uh, The Chinese have already got rovers on the dark side of the moon doing who the hell knows what. And it is a declarative moon base by 2030 from from both sides. I mean, yeah, it's a 1960s redux. You know, we just had a Nixon like politician go in and out of office. You know, the BLM protests are very reminiscent of kind of the hippie protests from the Vietnam War era. You know, at the same time as there are rioting on the streets and protests on the streets of cities across America. You've got, you know, in that same weekend, Bob and Doug are, are coming to and from Earth. You know, there's a resurgence of, uh, there's, there's a whole psychedelic movement going on. The, the parallels are insane. I mean, we're in, uh, yeah, we're in the late 60s version two. And I can't wait to see what the simulation throws at us, you know?
0: Hell yeah. Isn't it a fucking incredible time to be alive? Like, there's so much amazing stuff going on. Like, there's so many challenges to solve. I often say one of the,
1: one of the biggest this is going off the beaten path one of the biggest justifications i think just like psychologically for this being a simulation is you know if you have a post scarcity world you basically end up with a bunch of bored people right so people entertain themselves with video games or simulations or whatever and eventually like when people play video games they want harder and harder things or they want more complex more complex games right so if you follow that line of thinking you eventually get to a point where you go, well, I want to live the most realistic and challenging simulation ever with the, the most amount of wild stuff going on, right? And can I think of a historical period that is more wild than the next 50 years, where you've got income inequality reaching its peak, you've got a great power competition, you've got coronavirus, you've got a new space race, you've got psychedelics permeating like a global consciousness, you've got software and engineering finally permeating, you've got DeepMind mind and open AI pushing out all this like AI stuff you've got you know supercomputers you've got self-driving cars you've got rockets that land themselves like all wrapped up in this climate change is about to hit there's there's going to be a three-way geopolitical conflict while we're settling the moon you know the, the government's finally admitting there might be UFOs like if you were to scroll through the list of historical time periods and go I want the wildest adventure and the hardest possible kind of dice roll in your rpg character like i would struggle to find a 20-year period that matches more closely than what we're about to get
0: hopefully this time we don't everything doesn't kind of cut off in 1970, as as they say where it's like we're like on repeat
1: right yeah you know bring the gold standard back you know everyone everyone (laughs) can google what happened in 1971 and you can look at charts for yourself and you know we'll see uh we'll see what happens
0: Chris, I, I just put two and two together. We may not get the gold standard back, but you know what we have now? We have Bitcoin.
1: Totally, totally. The world is accelerating, my friend. Like there's a lot of wild stuff going on. And this is this is one of my personal gripes, which is like why I like what you're doing, which is kind of bringing back the world's fair 2.0, right? I think the biggest, the biggest tragedy of our generation is that 90% of the smart people are not off on a sailing boat, going into the new world, doing who the hell knows what, or, you know, um, making art or, you know, making music in the way that happened in the seventies where there was this Cambrian explosion of styles from all cultures and races and religions, or, you know, building really cool stuff or building the car or just accelerating on all these curves, right? And unfortunately what we've got now is 90% of the smart people in America uh, either stuck at a desk job, making slide decks for McKinsey and wanting to shoot themselves in the head after four years, or the smartest software engineers sitting in front of a desk, optimizing ad click revenue so that the algorithm is more accurate, but by 0.0001%. And the other thing that needs to happen here is that uh, we need to find a way that the, the culture and the media that is coming out that is influencing people to make life decisions is not dystopian it's like where is the you know high brow high frontier hopeful hope punk uh sci-fi that's coming out it's not it's all oh the world is screwed and there's a bunch of rich people on a space station and there's a bunch of poor people on earth and they're all dying like that really needs to change on two axes like where is the optimism and secondly why the hell have we built our education institutions to funnel people into Goldman Sachs and McKinsey or into Google, where we have all this like cool stuff to work on. You know what I mean? And I think people need to wake up. One of the things that I hope comes out of the pandemic, as bad as it was, is that as people think about, wow, I'm going back into the office. I'm getting called back into San Francisco. I'm getting called back into Google or Apple. Do I really wanna spend the next 10 years of my life playing this game? Is that worth the rub? And I think if people slowed down for two weeks and really thought about it, they would realize that it's not worth it and that we need to be working on more important things. And that's not to say that, you know, building businesses is the only way to do that. Hell, go make art for 10 years, go write political philosophy, go write books, go on a kind of three wise men adventure across multiple countries. But hell man, we've got to break some more people out of the matrix, you know?
0: Where can people find you and how can they, if they want to break out of the matrix, uh, how can they, how can they do so in the facet of helping, helping streamline space manufacturing and manufacturing the future?
1: They can find me on Twitter. If they just Google Chris Power Hadrian. Uh, If you want to talk to us about working with us to manufacture the future, you can email us at jobs at Hadrian.co. But I would encourage people to think about their own mission and think about what are the five to 10 things that they really care about that if they spend their life working on, they would be perfectly happy whether they succeeded or failed. And that might be space. There might be longevity. There might be climate change. And pick one of those companies like Living Carbon or Planet Labs or Hadrian or Vada or a longevity company like uh, my friend Celine's company, Loyal, or a biotech startup doing gene editing. Pick something that you think will have the biggest impact into whatever you care about. And whether that's climate or space or defense, that is, that is your personal philosophical choice. And then dedicate your time and art and craft to one of those startups really trying to move the needle. And that is the best possible thing you can do, but people are going to think for themselves and pick which of these arenas they think is the most important and think where they can have the most impact. Um, You know, I worry about climate change all the time. I think it's super important, but it's one of those arenas where I don't have the technical ability or the background where if I dedicated my life to it, I, I just don't think I could have an order of magnitude impact. I think I can hear. And I think people need to do that logic for themselves and really decide, like, where's the delta of participation? Like, where do you match what the world needs? And then go get after it. Connect with these founders on Twitter. I tell you, we're all trying to hire people. Hiring is the, <laughs> the number one problem. And the, the best thing that you can do is get off your 400K salary and free coffee and 10 to 3 work schedule and go get back in the trenches and learn how to get your nose bloody. That's what people can do.
0: Chris? thank you so much for, for coming on and I'm excited to kind of see, see the future of Hadrian and, and everything that's that's to come.
1: Likewise, Matt, And thanks for helping to Change the Cultural Landscape. You're doing good shit.
0: Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Build the Future podcast. If you're building and want to get support, want to hear about certain topics or hear from certain people, shoot us over an email to hello at buildthefuturepodcast.com or follow me, Cameron, on Twitter at Cam Huesi. And we'll see what we can make happen. That's it from us. Until next time, go build.